Today I want to look at the fulfillment of prophecies from Luke chapter 1. So at verse 26, Luke chapter 1, we read this. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, we're not going to read the verses that precede that, but if you look up at verse 19 in your Bible, we see that this is the same angel Gabriel that appears to Zacharias and announces that Elizabeth, who cannot have a child, is barren, her and her husband Zacharias are going to have a child, and it comes to pass. So the sixth month is a reference to the pregnancy of Elizabeth. This is how far along she was. So the same angel that announced to Zacharias that you will have a child is now appearing to this young woman, Mary or Miriam. And verse 27 says that Gabriel appeared to a virgin, espoused, engaged, and I did mention this to you, but let me mention it again. When a couple under Jewish custom were engaged, they were considered husband and wife. They were called husband and wife. Not the way we think of it now once the marriage ceremony takes place and vows are taken. Because it was a covenant, a very serious thing in the Bible, a covenant. So the virgin was engaged to a man. His name was Joseph, and he was from the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast into her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. I just want to mention this now while it's in my mind. This is kind of reminiscent of what we read about Noah. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord, which makes him unique, which is the word I've used in the title of these messages, makes him unique. Noah makes him unique in that period known as the old world. Noah was unique that he found grace. Obviously, others did not because they perished. And here, Mary has found favor with God. It's very similar. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus, which we know means Savior. His name is Savior. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And since we're not going to turn back today into Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, remember what it says there. Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace. It says, He shall be great. Here is a fulfillment. He shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. So if you look up and we see in verse 27, we see both in Mark 1 and Luke 1, that Joseph was a descendant of David, and more than likely, so was Mary. We read the genealogy in Luke, and we read the genealogy in Matthew, and you see some disparity between the persons named in the genealogies because one belongs to Joseph and one belongs to Mary. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. All the kingdoms of the world came to an end. All the kingdoms of the world will come to an end. So we read in the book of the Revelation, and the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of the Lord, of God, and of his Christ. And that's what we see here. This is, of course, thousands of years in so-called the making, the kingdom of Christ. And by that way, while well, that's on my mind, let me just exhort you to always keep that kingdom first. As you know, I love America. That's why I've had this flag behind me for, what, 30 years? More than 30 years. I'm a patriot. I love this country. But I never forget that it is still subservient to the kingdom of God. That Christ is always first. Always will be first. Now, verse 34, 
Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? How can this happen? I've never had any contact with a man. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost, all right, the Holy Spirit, shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Let me just look at that word for a moment, too, since I don't want to pass it by without making mention. When we look at Jesus on the mount where he was transfigured, we read in Matthew that a cloud overshadowed him. Same word, both in English and in Greek. And what it means is that this cloud, like the Shekinah glory of the tabernacle, enveloped Jesus, Peter, and James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. That was all that could, like, I don't want to use the word fog or mist, but you can think of it that way. This cloud descending upon them, Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And then all of a sudden, eternity is brought into it where we see Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus. Peter was so shook up by that sight that he didn't know what to say. So he said, well, we'll make some tabernacles. You know, if Martha was there, she would have started serving uh, eats. So that's the idea. So think about it this way. It may actually be here a type of announcement that is literal, that the Holy Spirit enveloped Mary in such a way, in this obviously miraculous way, that she was now found to be with child and never knew a man, never touched a man. So the verse goes on to say, verse 35b, Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And again, you know, this is very obvious as to why this child would be called the Son of God, because there's no human involvement. There's no human involvement at all. She's a virgin. She has never known a man. Joseph has not touched her. No one has touched her. And as the Holy Spirit enveloped her, and this event, this miracle took place, the child was and still is called the Son of God. That would be the accusation that's written above Jesus Christ, King of the Jews, which is exactly what the testimony. In fact, if you look back, we won't turn there and read it, but if you look back and you read the beginning of Luke in this first verse here, it's very much like the opening of the book of Acts. Obviously, Luke wrote this gospel account, and he also wrote the book of Acts. And he was not an eyewitness, as Matthew was and Peter was and John was. Mark and Luke were not eyewitnesses, but he says here, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they deliver them unto us. So we already see the gospel being passed down. It's in the same generation, but it's already being handed down from the beginning, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, so we know who this was written to. But my point is this, Luke did not see these things. Well, for that matter, neither did Matthew or John or Peter or any of them. This was a private thing, as I brought to your attention Friday night. This was a private event, initially between a young Jewish woman and God. Imagine the difficulty of explaining this to her husband, Keep in mind that this is a very pious, pious woman, and her husband, as we read in Matthew, is likewise an exceptionally righteous man. And she's going to declare to him, to Joseph, that God did this. Then, as Joseph is going to put her away privately, an angel, who's not named in Matthew's gospel, appears to Joseph and says, don't, don't do that. Don't be afraid to take her as your wife. This is from the Holy Spirit. Now you have two people, and I just want to remind you again that this is beyond just difficult. I mean, even in Abraham's case with Sarah, given their ages, he being 100, she being 90, they have a child. 
it's difficult to explain that, but people can say that's really, you know, something. That's unique. That's the word I've been using. That's unique. But in the case of Mary, trying to explain this first to her husband, Joseph, we can pretty much say it's impossible. It's impossible to explain this came from God. Then Joseph is told. So now there's the husband and wife for a long time going around for quite some years saying that what happened to my wife, let's say years later, decades later, what happened to my wife was an event that came from God. They had to live with that. They had to live with the fact that I say no one would believe them. Eventually, people believed them. If we look here again in the beginning of Luke, and it began to spread. But initially, for decades, Joseph and Mary had a truly unbelievable story. It was just not to be believed. And then we could think further, if you want to do that later when you're home, why God does these things. But he does. Look at the prophets. Look at the messages given to the prophets. And for the most part, they simply stood alone. Thus saith the Lord. While everybody around them, and I'm talking about the religious crowd now in ancient times, Israel, throughout church history, it's the church contradicting the message of God giving to you know, one man. Here it's one woman and then one man. And for decades, they are putting forth a story that no one believes, so much so that when Jesus would be in ministry, he would be challenged by the Pharisees to say, we were not born of fornication. This is something they live with their whole life. And what I want you to understand, the life of faith has not changed. It has not changed. What you learn when reading and praying or from this pulpit or wherever you learn it, as long as it's the truth coming from God's word, of course it's not as private as what God told Noah, what God told Mary, Joseph, and so many other of the patriarchs of the Bible, the prophets of the Bible. But it's still a personal faith that at times, even with someone who is a true believer, don't understand what you're trying to communicate. Even though it's found in the Bible, you can flip a page and say, look, it's written right here. And they don't see it. And I'm not challenging their salvation. I'm just simply saying that this walk that we have with the Lord is very personal. But in that, it's very personal. It's also very difficult. As I share with you in a jocular fashion, it's difficult being the pastor. If I say the services will now be three hours long, more people will leave the church. And if I say, oh, you know what? I'm going to knock them down to 40 minutes. And then the people who come for three hours will say, so you don't win because people are whimsical. Human nature is whimsical, rather, and it's capricious. And I want to stick to the scriptures here. Not all this God told me, and I had a dream, though I do believe in those things. I have also come to the conclusion that about 90% of what people say, God told them, God never said. My personal conviction. But here we got the book. Right here. It's right here in front of us, where we say anybody could read this, which is true, but not everybody understands it. In other words, if everyone who read the scriptures understood them because it's just like reading you know, a book on algebra, or a map where you could see the countries. If that were the case, then Jesus never would have reproved the scribes and the Pharisees, and he never would have had to explain and open the eyes of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus about the things contained in the scripture. So we are very much dependent, as much as Mary was, we're very much dependent on the power and mercy and kindness of the Holy Spirit to understand what we're reading. It's not all that simple just to read the text. In any case, just try to think of how difficult it was throughout her life to her death, Mary, and Joseph's death, neither one of which we know exactly when they passed away, how difficult it had to be to live their whole life telling people this is a work of God. Maybe at some point, well, yeah, certainly at some point, Jesus' life and ministry would begin to open the eyes of people that truly, as the centurion said at the crucifixion of Jesus, truly this was the Son of God. 
But it was his life, it was his ministry, it was his words. They were saved, Jesus. No man ever spoke like this. Verse 36, And behold thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. This is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. Here's a great verse, which Jesus will again utter in his ministry. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. Whether it's the resurrection or the fact that a woman who in all the natural processes given to us by this same God has designed for a man and a woman to come together and procreate, and a child is born, circumvents his own principle and has a woman become pregnant by his own power. And for me, whether it's the resurrection again or miracles that Jesus performed or this event here, the virgin birth of Christ, I always think to myself, why do people think it's such a fantastic thing with God to do anything? Anything. To heal a sickness that men say is incurable and that may very well indeed be incurable. Why do people think it's so difficult for God to do anything? I remember reading a story, and I think I shared this Wednesday night in the Bible study, but I want you to picture a small, let's say a turtle, underneath this very heavy rock. How he got there, we don't know. We don't care. But he's underneath this rock. There's no way that he can get out from underneath this heavy, heavy object way, way too heavy, can't move. Now you come along and you see his plight and you understand it and you take the rock and you just fling it. You see, in the eyes of the turtle, this is beyond his nature, it's supernature, supernatural. But for you and for me, it's just, it's just easy, just, just throw it. Don't you agree that it's an exceptionally small view and understanding of God when we limit him and limit his kingdom and limit his outreach and limit his hand and his arms and all of this? It's a limited misunderstanding of God with whom nothing is impossible. I was meditating this morning on this one thing again. I told you that if I think about it too long, it actually produces an anxiety attack in me. Well, anxiety anyway. I don't know why. It just makes me very tense. How can God have always been? That is way above my pay grade. I believe it. Don't get me wrong. I just have a hard time with the concept. If he always was, how could he always be? And then it starts to do like the two mirrors or two cameras. You see a reflection going back and 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 back. And there's no end to it. Why do you think perhaps? Now you believe these scriptures. I know that. But when it comes to your personal walk in faith, we're going to see Mary is going to declare in verse 38. Let's look at it. Mary said, behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. What she's being told here is not only impossible, but it's incredible. And I don't know if at the moment she fully understood what burden she would have to bear to the day she died. That she would have to claim the truth all the days of her life. What happened to me years ago, after Jesus is now crucified, let's say 33 years, what happened to me was of God. And Joseph, wherever he dies, we don't know, but let's assume that he's around for most of this period of Mary's life. He's declaring the same thing. This was an act of God. God did this. Well, nobody believes them. So much so that the religious crowd, experts in the Bible, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, believed what I suppose we would all believe. This was done by fornication. Somebody committed adultery. They would say, we were not born of fornication, because that's what everybody believed. And frankly, that's what anybody will believe. But it wasn't. And so I say to you again, don't limit your view of God. God is working out things in the earth. I have satisfied myself and calmed myself, spoken to myself, and reminded myself. God is not only working out a plan in the whole world and in the universe and the kingdom to come and all this with such precision and detail that he writes it all down in the book, but he's working out a plan in my own life too. And I want to be honest with you, as I think I've shared this a little bit here, a little bit there. 
I don't always agree with God. I don't think that some things should have went my way. I don't think these things should have happened. I really don't. But when I think it through, and I remember that God is not only, nothing is impossible with God, but that he's perfect and he cannot make a mistake and he cannot fail. You know, little by little, I begin to see wisdom in the things that have fallen out in my life. And I hope that this happens to you. I begin to see wisdom that had that not happened, we'll call it a bad thing. Had that bad thing not happened, it wouldn't have turned me in that direction, which led me to a blessing. And sometimes those blessings are so personal, I can't share with any living human being or even explain it to them. And if I tried to, they wouldn't understand it, so it's no use trying to explain it. And if that bad thing didn't happen, it wouldn't have changed me in this way. And I would submit to you that we need to see God in the proper light, that with him nothing is impossible. And when Mary says in verse 38, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word, I'm uncertain that she understood the full implication of that, but certainly in time she did. She says in faith, all right, let the Holy Spirit surround me and enshrine me, overshadow is the word we have here, and let this conception take place. I think maybe only in the process of time she came to a full realization of what that entailed in her life. So I say this to you as a practical application also. Did any of us here ever appreciate what this walk of faith was really going to be all about? I know when I was listening to all the popular preachers on television, radio, radio mostly back in those days, I envisioned what they were telling me, basically. This is just going to be a real bed of roses. But they never talked about thorns. They never talked about the uncomfortable situations you'd be placed in where it's darkness or the dark nights of the soul, where it seems like God has just simply disappeared and God's not around. Well, that's the appearance, but those are tests from God too. Believest thou this? Jesus said to Martha, yeah, I believe it, Lord, but she had a misunderstanding of what Jesus was referring to. I believe that my brother will be raised from the dead in the end at the last day. And Jesus says, yes, that's all correct. Yes, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm the resurrection. He's going to get up out of that grave in a couple of minutes. <laughs> when I think about death, I think about that. I think about the fact that I'm believing that God is going to take my body out of the ground. That's with the presumption that I die before he returns. But I'm believing that when I go into a coffin, I'm going to come back out again. Amen. And I may add this too. Whenever I think about being stuffed in a coffin, <laughs> I'm not very thrilled about that idea. But I'll come back out again. You'll come back out again. And then it's game over. Then whatever we've done for the Lord, it wasn't in vain. None of it was in vain. We may not see that now, but one day we will see that. And that's what this book says. And that's where the life of faith is. While we're surrounded by people, many people of all sorts, including some in our own midst, I mean in the church, capital C, who laugh about these things because they've given themselves over to the ways of this world. So verse 39, Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judah, entered into the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. This is her cousin. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb. This is John, right? John Baptist, John the Baptist. The babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. She was filled with the Holy Spirit. By the way, we see this with the high priest that year, that the Holy Spirit moved upon him, and he was unaware of this. In other words, he didn't know he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he spake about the death of Jesus, and he says, you know nothing. 
Isn't it expedient that one man die instead of the whole nation die? And it's recorded in the gospel according to John that he was speaking under the aegis of the Holy Spirit, prophesying in a manner of speaking, prophesying that Jesus' death was to cover the sins of the world. But he didn't know it. Elizabeth here is filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't know that she knew it or not, but she spake out with a loud voice, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Now look at verse 43. You can only say this by the Holy Spirit. And whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? No aunt, right? Elizabeth would have been Jesus' aunt or second cousin. No cousin, no aunt, no relative is going to say, your baby will be my master, my Lord, except she speaks by the Holy Spirit. This is why we read further on in 1 Corinthians that no man can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. Now people can mouth the words, I mean, there's actors, and some of them are good at what they did because of the sonority of their voice, and they read the scriptures, and it's nice to listen to. But whether they are actual believers in Christ or not, that's another story. So I'm saying that you can read words, but only the Holy Spirit can say, Jesus is the Lord. He is the Lord. My God. My God. And whence, verse 43, and whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. And let me just add something here again as a thought. A baby in its mother's womb, of course, knows nothing. We know that this baby would be called John Baptist or John the Baptist in the gospel accounts. And yet it wouldn't end well for him either. His head would be taken off by her. But he was a powerful, powerful prophet. The last of the prophets is not Jesus. The last of the prophets is John the Baptist. The Savior of the world is Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth. And he would give his life literally, as so many have and so many did in this book here, for the word spoken to them. I wonder if in the circles of faith so-called today, any preacher would be truthful enough or brave enough to say to the people, what you're believing today may cost you your life. And we know, just by observation, we know that most people don't actually give their life, they don't die for their faith. But rather, those who are really living the life of faith say with the Apostle Paul, I die daily because I must decrease, he must increase. Somebody's got to die and it won't be Jesus. That means you have to die, little and by little and by little, until we become more and more like we saw here Friday night. Once the lights were put off and all the candles were lit, it lit up the room, effulgent with light. That's how your life is supposed to be. But it won't be that if you're increasing and Jesus is decreasing. Now, the Magnificat. Verse 45, Elizabeth is still speaking, and blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her. God is going to do it. This is a fantastic declaration because she's not known a man. Elizabeth has her husband, Zacharias. Mary has not known a man. And there'd be a performance. Let's take it further for you and for me. Jesus said, I will come again. And I'll say to you, and there will be a performance of that word. In America, I think the best time, in my opinion, if God is interested in my opinion, he should do it on election day. <laughs> and the winner is, ba ba da ba. That would be the way I would write it. I don't know that Jesus will do that. I think it would be great on election day as CNN and Fox News and everybody else is tallying. And we're projecting the winner to be, ba 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 and here comes the trumpet, uh, Jesus. <laughs> and Mary said, my soul doth magnify the Lord. Keep in mind what she's talking about here. She's just been told she's going to become pregnant without the aid of man. 
My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit hath rejoiced in God, my Savior. This points out, obviously, that Mary knew that she herself needed a Savior. For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. And I don't really have an objection, honestly, to the title of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Scripture says she was blessed and she was a virgin and her name was Mary. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things. And nothing has happened yet. He that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. That's 2,000 years ago, and the generations still are going. So that means his mercy is still on all of us who will appeal to him for mercy. I would caution you to appeal to him, at least not too often, for justice. I want justice to be done. What if God was to say back to you, well, okay, if that's the case with your enemy here, if you want justice done over there, should I do the same with you too? What you owe me? The Apostle Paul would write about Philemon, and he would say, listen, you know, he ran away. I want you to forgive him on my account, and I want to remind you that basically you owe me your life. So that's kind of putting a person in a situation they can't get out of. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He has showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination, that's a key word there, of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. And then we keep reading, he hath filled the hungry with good things and the rich he hath sent empty away. And so you could read the rest of the Magnificat and the story of Jesus begins. It is impossible, and we know this, for a woman to be pregnant without a man. But let me just remind you one, one last time. When you're reading the Bible... Here I flip to the book of Isaiah. And we're reading this. And we read it with a, what would be the right word? We read it with a bit of drama. Not really the word I want, but we read about, Isaiah was powerful. Well, traditionally, he was sawn in half for his efforts. What I want to say to you is that the life of faith is by its nature a crucifixion. That's according to the Son of God, Jesus. It's by its nature a death to ourself and our selfishness and all the things that we hold dear. Christ says, let them go. I want to finish with this here. Since my childhood, my favorite singer has always been one person. His father was a Baptist minister. And then he himself later pastored the very same church that his father pastored in Chicago. One of the songs that he made very popular, he was a pastor. His father was a pastor. But he is more known for his songs, for his singing. One of his first hits, sold millions of copies, was Straighten Up and Fly Right. And this song, by the son of a pastor, which he wrote, was taken from one of his father's sermons. And it was an allegory of a bird which picks up a monkey, and the bird in his mind thinks, I can let go of this monkey anytime I want. And in so many words, tells the monkey so, and the monkey says, I've got you by the throat, and I can strangle you anytime I want, so you better straighten up and fly right. And it's kind of a situation here. Edward Coles was the pastor, was the father. His son was Nathaniel Adams Coles, whom we all know as Nat King Cole. Something led me to study him just a little bit. I've always, I know many of his songs by heart, I have since I was a child. Something that just, when I was listening during this Christmas season to his music, there was just something there when he talked about Christ our Lord. And there was some type of emphasis. The singers can do that as a technique. But sometimes, again, it's an intuitive feeling. So I wanted to see what religion, if any, was Nat King Cole. 
And much to my both surprise and delight, found out that he was not only the son of a preacher. By the way, his father had one ambition and only one ambition. And that one ambition was to preach the Holy Word. And he wanted his sons, plural, to all be preachers. And Nat Kinko was a pastor. But of course, even when you read up on him, and I have a biography on him, even that is not well accented. They talk about his music and his song and the Nat Kinko trio and all this stuff. Not without warrant, but I was more interested in knowing what was his belief then I found out what I found out as I researched. It was just an intuitive sense, the way he articulates certain songs in the so-called Christmas songs, the way he articulates the name of Jesus. It was an intuitive feeling. So we'll take up one of the songs that he wrote, and he wrote many songs in that King Cole, as a lesson for you and for me. In this hour of history, whatever anybody else does, we cannot control. You cannot control your spouse, your children, your grandchildren, your nephews, your nieces, your uncles, your co-workers, the people in your church. You cannot control anyone but yourself. And I think that this is the time to straighten up and fly right. My dad used to say that once in a while, straighten up and fly right. I think that this is the time. But you always keep in mind that while we're flying, there's a monkey that's got his hand on our throat called Satan. Now, he really can't choke us whenever he wants. That we know. But it's a mistake to dismiss him altogether because he's going to do and has done anything and everything in his power, how limited it may be, but it's pretty extensive to keep you from going ahead, from going forward. He does not want you more dedicated to Christ. And the reason is, is because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And he knows that. These demons, when they saw Jesus, they said, we know who you are. And when the seven sons of Sceva that tried to cast out the devil say, hey, let's do this the way Paul did it. And the demons said, we know Paul and we know Jesus. Who are you? And they beat the mess out of the sons of Sceva. Let's not forget that we do have an enemy. He's doing everything in his power. Any thought that he could bring into your mind, any person, situation, whatever it may be to distract you. He can't take away your salvation. That's good news. But he could distract you from your course, from your ministry. And he will do it if you permit it. So I think it's time that we straighten up, fly right, realizing that the life of faith is not easy. It never has been easy enough for anyone inside the book or in history. It never has been easy, and it won't be in the future. We pray. We believe. Father, we thank you on this day after Christmas now, December 26th. We've come through another year. It is, always has been, in my mind, unfortunate that so many people, because of the stress of buying gifts and shopping and other things, money, miss the whole event. The whole event is about a woman who never knew a man became pregnant because she was overshadowed by the Almighty. And that she went through her whole life with her husband, claiming that their firstborn child, Jesus, was an act of God. And a sword pierced her own heart as well, not only through this testimony, but watching him die that death on the cross. Help us today, God, to straighten up, fly right. Not let Satan, that monkey, have his hands in our throat to choke us and bring us down from our flight in Christ. Help us, God, to understand the hour, to understand the message, and understand that we only control ourselves. We give you praise. We give you glory. We give you honor today, O oh Father, for the things that you have done and the things that are yet to be done. Thy kingdom come, and it will. And there will be a performance of those things we have read and that have been told to us by the Lord. What a day that will be. Well, again, I wish you all a Merry Christmas, certainly a happy and a blessed new year in every way. 
Father, I ask you once again that here at Time for Truth, we would always accent the two great commandments, to love God, not just to love you with something and trying our best, but with everything that we have, all of the heart, all of the soul, all of the mind, and all of the strength, and then likewise to love one another. And for this, we give you all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor today in Jesus' mighty name. Can you say amen? Amen. amen. amen.